morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the show. This show. My show. Where I'm the boss. Where I run things. I run the ship. If I want the ship to go down and sink, I can sink it. If I want it to float, I can float it. I run this town. And this town is called the State of the Universe. And I thank you for tuning in. Checking us out. Thank you for being here. Today, I sit down with none other than the great, none other than the great. I think my Pennsylvania accent makes me combine every word in a sentence and just say the combined word as a sentence, but no one understands what the sentence is. So I gotta put spaces. I gotta hit that verbal space bar when I talk. I gotta hit that bar, hit that bar. That way you can actually make sense of the words that are coming out of my lips. Today I have the great Dr. Peter Barlow on the show. And Dr. Peter Barlow is an associate professor of immunology and infection, as well as the director of research of the School of Applied Sciences at Edinburgh Napier University in Scotland. He previously worked at the CDC, the Center for Disease Control here in the United States, for several years, and he worked there during the H1N1 pandemic in 2009, which is really cool. It's cool to get his perspective on how our government, a governmental agency like the CDC, handles the spread of a pandemic. It's interesting. It's interesting to get an insider's take on that, you know? And so, I hope you enjoy our conversation. We talk about the common cold, which he is working to cure right now. We talk about when you can expect to see some preliminary cures, some preliminary vaccines, how we intend to do it, the flu shot, how we can predict the strains of flu that are going to impact a region. We talk about all of these things and a ton more. He's, he's so intelligent when it comes to this. If you want to learn more about Peter Barlow, check in the description. I'll link his website, barlowlab.com. I will link his social media. You can follow him there. Follow me on social media. Follow the show. I hope you enjoy the episode. I hope you learn a lot from the conversation that Dr. Peter Barlow and I get to have together. Dr. Peter Barlow. Thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Coming all the way from Scotland, right? Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So, and uh, this might be the longest distance uh, recording I've ever done. And that's good. I'm looking to branch out. But the time zones are weird. They're weird to match up. Scotland's okay. Scotland's okay. But when we're talking about Australia, I have to do recordings at 4 a.m. It's just not attainable. But listen, man, you're an expert on something that I... Absolutely. And for people that listen to the show, they know I absolutely hate the common cold. Hate it. It is the worst for me. All right. There's some things I would rather have. Like you get the cold for four days, right? I would rather if given the choice, I would rather go with one arm for those four days or I would rather (laughs) like one ear doesn't work for those four days. It, it, I don't know what it is about me in particular, but it is such an obstruction to doing anything when I get the cold. And so um, talk to us about it. What what made you wake up one day and say, you know what? I want to come up with a cure for the common cold. <laughs> um, everybody asks me that question. 
And uh, there's, there's two different answers to that. The first one being that I'm not sure we're ever going to see a cure for the common cold. And um, it's not the biggest focus of our research. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, to answer the question as to why I woke up one day and decided to work on it, um, it was purely by chance. Um, I applied for some grant funding because I'd already done some work on influenza um, and a couple of other viruses. And I noticed that, well, there isn't any treatments for the virus that causes the common cold. So let's explore that. So I applied for some grant funding and got it. And things just kind of went from there. So I've been incredibly lucky um, to work with the virus that causes a common cold, which is called rhinovirus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a challenging virus to work with, um, but it was purely by chance that I started working with it. I see. Now, there's a, a few things that you said that I, I, I want to mention. I want to, you sure. know, sort of talk about. Uh, but first, to, to set the stage, why is it that today we can walk around and we have vaccines for, say, polio or rubella or measles or smallpox or even some strains of the flu, mm-hmm. but the common cold remains elusive? Yeah, so... And we can call it rhinovirus if you prefer, right? I don't know. There's certain um, things, there's certain words, because, you know, I'm in the astrophysics community, there's certain words where people say, and I'm like, ooh. Sure. Yeah, let's say it's something different. So when you talk about the common cold, um, there's multiple viruses that uh, can cause what you would call a common cold. So what we're defining as a common cold is, you know, an upper respiratory tract infection where you feel a bit miserable for four or five days. You get a runny nose and a fever and a headache and you don't feel too well. And you know, there's several different viruses that can cause that. The main one that causes it is called rhinovirus. And, you know, that's that's the virus that we work for, work with. Um, so we can call it rhinovirus if you want, because that's, you know, that's the specific answer. There's uh-huh. over 160 different rhinoviruses. And, um, you know, a healthy person will get a, a cold about three or four times a year. If you're lucky enough to Ooh, have a... That's <laughs> too many things. I can't do it. <laughs> well, if you're lucky enough to have a child um, who uh, is perhaps in, in nursery, um, then they'll maybe get, you know, eight to 12 colds a year because My. they don't have any pre-existing immunity to to all those viruses. Man, that that is that seems like something so... In preparation for this interview, I, I looked up some figures because I figured that the cold had to have some economic impact mm-hmm. because people get sick so often. Mm-hmm. So I, I looked up and the University of Michigan Health System did a did a uh, a study recently where they tried to pin down the number. I mean, that's a, such a hard thing to do. It's actually, I would say, near impossible to do, but you can get order of magnitude estimate. And they published a, a figure of $40 billion a year in the United States, which is substantially more than some other conditions that we would consider to be uh, serious. Things like mm-hmm. asthma, things like emphysema, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so this is this for people wondering, like, wait, how does the common cold cost money? This is things mm-hmm. like doctor visits that are unnecessary 
because you can't go to the doctor and, and, you know, get a cure. So you're just mm-hmm. going and then wasting the infrastructure of the, the, the medicine. Um, skipped work days, skipped school days, things like that. So That's the big one. So skipped work days, I think, is where the biggest ep- economic impact comes from. Um, people that have to stay home because they're sick. Right. And so that's that's 40 billion a year. And uh, this is something that that is also big and pointed out in the study is that this ends up to be 33 million doctor visits a year in the United States for the common cold that result in the prescription of antibiotics. Now, the actual number of doctor visits is like 100 million, but about a third of those patients go home with antibiotics. And that's a problem in its own right. Mm-hmm. Right, because you, you're when you overprescribe antibiotics, bad things happen. That's true. That's true. So um, there's a big focus right now on um, antibiotic resistance in bacterial diseases. So um, if you are um, a patient who goes to the doctor and you have a rhinovirus infection, then antibiotics will not do you any good. But the problem is that when you contract a rhinovirus infection or another infection that that causes, um, you know, a disease in your upper airways, then you can become more susceptible to bacterial infection. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's where the doctor would say maybe it's best to prescribe antibiotics. Um, I mean, the main thing to, to make a distinction is that if you're a healthy person and you get a common cold and there's no, you know, complications, there's Mm -hmm. no, bacterial infection you can clear it by yourself you'll recover from it in four or five days right the real problem is the people with asthma Mm -hmm. and cystic fibrosis and copd chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder those for those patients um getting a cold can be a very serious illness because they already have um, inflammation in their lungs so it can be quite a serious condition for them and that's important to point out because i think and and i don't know how the health system or how society reacts to the cold where you're at but and and i know you've worked at the the cdc in, in the u.s mm-hmm. before so you uh you would know that americans in general sort of have like a it's just a cold get over it mentality right keep moving um you know and, and to the extent where even taking a day off of work sometimes is like mm, did you really need to take a day off were you really sick you just didn't feel well you know mm-hmm. um and do you think that that stigma prevents cures from being found because people just don't care about it and in turn hurts people that actually do uh you know when they catch this virus that really do put themselves at risk of, of serious injury or death? I think, um, I mean, there's a couple of points there. The, the first one being that I think people um, r- really would welcome some form of vaccine, for example, against rhinovirus. And there's, you know, there's a number of groups doing some really fantastic work. Yeah, over, we'll definitely delve into to, to that. Yeah. Um, so we can talk about that in a little mm-hmm. bit more detail later on. Um, if, you know, if you go to work and you have a cold, you know, you push through it, you have your stiff upper lip and you feel comfortable going into work and pushing through that illness. Yeah, I walk then, around with tissues like 
in my nose. <laughs> That's my move. That's my That's patented absolutely move. Fine. Yeah. Um, for me, I would, you know, some employers might want to appreciate their considerate uh, employees that stay at home and and don't spread that that virus around the rest um, of their employees. So, you know, there's yeah. two sides. Do you want someone in who's sick but performing their job, or do you would you rather they stayed at home and and recovered properly? It's a good question, and I don't have an intuition for how easy it is to spread the cold. So my thought is always like, it's all, it's like an invisible paint, right? And it's yeah. everywhere, and you touch it, and you get the invisible paint on you, and then you walk around, and you touch a door, and you put the invisible paint on the door, and then someone else comes along, and they touch it. And then by the time, you know, at the end of the week, if you touch a door handle to the coffee shop, you're touching, you know, 40,000 people's hands. Um <laughs> that's that's how it intuitively works in my brain and so i i often hear people say not necessarily doctors but i I, this is a common uh, thing and i don't know if it's a misconception if it's true if it's false that the the cold can be spread days before you see symptoms so it's hard to avoid actually you know giving the invisible paint to everyone is that true yeah so uh it takes a you know, it depends on the individual, but it takes a few days from the point that you're exposed to the virus to the point that you're actually sitting there and thinking, oh, yeah, actually, I'm sick. I've got a headache. Um, I don't feel very well. Um, it's incredibly easy to catch uh, rhinovirus. It's, oh, I know. You know. I have it all the time. It's spread by aerosol, so you have to breathe it in. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah, so it's not to, invisible, but it's like invisible. It's it's in the air, so you can just breathe it in. You can breathe it in. Uh, um, why? I just use If someone sneezes, for example, and you breathe in their aerosol, that's a fantastic way to get infected by rhinovirus. The other way is exactly how you mentioned, um, by touching a surface that's been contaminated with rhinovirus and then, you know, touching your hand to your nose. Again, that's another way. The virus has to be breathed in. Um, it it doesn't survive for long outside the body. Viruses aren't particularly good at surviving outside the body, so um, it will only stay on a surface for a matter of hours or days. But you you yeah. don't you are giving me some tools because I'm I'm <laughs> I am you know you're fighting the common cold. Well, guess what I am too. We're just different. <laughs> we're different battlefields. I'm out there on the front lines, and I get this thing all the time. Yeah, so. Uh, recently, I moved to uh, I I was a student in a small at a small college in the middle of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and I lived in a metropolitan area that had maybe like forty thousand people, and I didn't get the cold very often. You know, okay. I don't know what precautionary measures one can take to avoid it, uh, whether it's exercise, whether it's just eating healthy, whether it's um you know ensuring that that your body is in a good place to fight whatever viruses come in. It probably also has to do with the amount of people you're around. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah. so, yeah, now I've moved to a different area. I moved mm-hmm. to Rochester, New York, where the metropolitan area is like a million people. And now, since I've lived here like, what, eight months, I think I've already gotten the cold three times, which okay. is like I never got the cold three times in a year. So, yeah, how does population play a role? It, it would have to. Yeah, so the there's no way to avoid it um, unless you live in a bubble. Um, 
And I might soon. (laughs) The best thing to do is keep yourself healthy. Um, Exercise, good nutrition, keep your immune system healthy. And then you've got the best chance of fighting off any virus or bacteria when you encounter it. The best way to catch a cold is by surrounding yourself with infected people. So what you tend to find is that the virus or several strains of the virus kind of circulate in pockets, Mm -hmm. you know, different uh, populations throughout the country, throughout the world. There's, you know, dominant strains of the virus that kind of circulate and infect people. Um, So, yeah, you might if you're if you're coming into contact with a lot more people, you're giving yourself a better opportunity of catching that virus. Mm -hmm. Now, this was the first year in many years that I got the flu shot. I never okay. really got the flu shot before. Um, That's great. I, I never got the flu vaccine. Um, and so I, I just never got sick. It was like probably a decade since I was a little kid. I haven't got the flu. But okay. this year, since I live in this new great area with millions of people, I figured mm-hmm. I would get the flu shot, the flu vaccine. And w- why is it – actually, a better question because I think it would be really instructive to the people listening. How sure. does the flu vaccine even work? Because I know that last year, specifically in the United States, we had a really bad year for the flu. I think it was like 80,000 mm-hmm. deaths from the flu, which is record numbers. Not record mm-hmm. numbers all time. Of course, there's been flus that have, you know, wiped out populations in the past. But sure. um, record numbers for, you know, sort of like modern day America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why why is that? I mean, there's predicting the strains of flu that are going to be circulating in the, in the Northern Hemisphere is um, a very difficult thing to do. And I think um, at the moment, a, a pretty fantastic job is done um, where, whereby the strains, the predicted strains that are going to be circulated, circulating in the Northern Hemisphere are the ones that are covered by the annual flu vaccine. So that's why we get an annual flu vaccine because there's different dominant strains circulating every year. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the flu vaccine um, is more effective at protecting you against a given strain than other times. You know, you get varying levels of protection. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that every single year people get the flu vaccine for that year that they go and get that vaccination. Right. Because that is the best possible way to protect yourself against flu. So it's it, it's like a an ongoing race. Exactly. You're racing, you're racing against the evolution of this virus. You're racing against the circulation of this flu virus and you're trying to predict what it's going to do the next year so that you can create a vaccine that mm-hmm. will protect as many people as possible how is that prediction made you were at the cdc in 2009 with the h1n1 um, outbreak and can i actually ask you something about that um what was it called before it was called h1n1 it was called swine flu right is that true um yeah not not in cdc (laughs) not at cdc so i think in the media it was called um swine flu um it's it was you know, novel pandemic H1N1 or novel H1N1. Yeah. So I had a, at the beginning of this month, last month rather, I had a Dr. Aisha Akhtar on here and she's a neurologist and she has written books about our 
connection with animals, in particular the way our health is influenced by the way we treat animals, in regards to factory farms and things like that. And she told me that the media was encouraged to change the name from swine flu to H1N1 because it was impacting sales of meat. And I was curious if you had heard that. I had not heard that. Um, I thought that was really interesting. I can imagine it would. Yeah. And so you were there at the time, and you were Mm -hmm. there, I imagine, how, how long were you there? At the CDC? Um, I was at CDC, I think, for two and a half years, between two and a half, three years. Okay, so you went through a couple uh, flu seasons. Yes. How is the prediction made? Does someone have to get in- infected first? Do they do they look at, at places that are um, suffering from, from a flu now? How, how, how do they come to the conclusion, you know what, this is going to be the strain that we got to watch out for? Sure. Um, I'll preface this answer with a caveat that um, I did not work in the prediction department. <laughs> and okay. I think the, the predictions done by um, not just CDC, but um, flu scientists from all over the world right. and the World Health Organization. Um, my understanding is that they look at the dominant strains that are circulating in the southern hemisphere, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. you've got winter essentially in the southern hemisphere. Mm. And then you yes. get winter in the, the northern hemisphere. So they look at the dominant strains that, that cir- circulate in the southern hemisphere and make a prediction for what's going to be circulating. What are the dominant strains that you're going to see in the northern hemisphere? And that's why the vaccine has um, three or four different strains in it mm. uh-huh. because there are multiple strains circulating. Right. Yeah, that, it's it's tough. It's a tough business, I imagine. And I wonder... I. Often on here talk about uh, science denialism, and I wonder to what degree the fact that we have to make a prediction – of course we have to make a prediction. It's such a complex system. It's like mm-hmm. a weatherman, right, or a meteorologist or whatnot. It's a complex, complex system, and it's really tough to make predictions about chaos like that. And mm-hmm. And it seems to me that – Every single system, whether it be meteorology, whether it be predicting the flu vaccine, every single system that relies on predicting chaos seems to be doubted by the population. It's like I see a lot of people who just don't get the flu vaccine. They figure they don't need it. They figure it's not going to help them anyway. My mom said that to me recently. I was like, yeah, mom, I got a flu vaccine today. You should too. And um, I was talking to her on the phone and she said that she wasn't going to get one because – it it won't protect her completely anyway and um that's a that's a belief that's held by many people you know and uh so i encourage anyone listening to to go get the flu vaccine i don't think it's too late right we're we're nope. good when is flu season anyway it's like this time right yeah yeah, yeah. um go and get vaccinated yeah. i mean i'm i'm a immunologist i work with viruses every single day um i got vaccinated against the flu I get vaccinated against the flu every single year. Yeah, I'm going to um, have to start. I need it's, it. it's one of the greatest inventions um, <laughs> that mankind has ever come up with. It um, will be a good vaccine. It will be one of the best vaccines until that common cold vaccine rolls out, um, <laughs> which may, maybe never will. But you, you brought up something actually important that I didn't plan to talk about, but, but it's it's interesting. The common cold gets its name, cold, because it tends to happen in climates that 
that are are undergoing winter, right? Um, you could get it in the summer, but but mm-hmm. you see a pre- um, pre- higher prevalence in in the winter months. Why? It doesn't have to do. I, this is a this is a thing that I had to to look up before, um, and I can see you're like you're you want to scream it out. Um, <laughs> it, so I'll just let you scream it out. Yeah, you see. No, like no. A, it's, um, the you can get the cold at any time of the year. Yes. Um, there's a lot of theories as to why um, it's more prevalent at certain times of the year. Uh, so one theory is that in uh, winter, you spend a lot more time indoors. Yes. And, that's the big, that's uh, the one I've, I've, I've heard. Around sort of, other people. Yeah. Uh, the ambient temperature might be lower and lower temperatures um, with with rhinovirus, for example, if if we're growing it in the lab, um, we'll grow it at 33 degrees. I'm not sure where that is in Fahrenheit. Um, 33 Celsius. That's kind of, that's warm, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, warm. So that would be around, yeah. what, 95 or something like that? Yeah, very Whereas, warm. Other viruses, we would grow at body temperature at 37 degrees. So rhinovirus, because it's a, you know, it replicates in the upper airways, we tend to grow at a slightly lower temperature and it grows better um, at that temperature. So, you know, there's a lot of different uh, theories as to why you're yeah. more likely to to catch a cold uh-huh. at colder times of the year. But Yeah, every old woman in America, I don't know about in the world, probably in the world, <laughs> every old, over 60 years old, if you're 60 years old or older, and you're a woman. I don't know why. I'm not being sexist. This is just what this is my observation. You will tell your kids to bundle up, to not go outside with wet hair, to, you know, do all these sort of like avoid the cold type of scenarios so that you can avoid the common cold. But I don't think any of those things help, right? There's, is there a correlation between being physically cold and catching the cold? Um, I mean, I would hope that that both women and men give that advice to their kids. Um, I see. I grew up okay. I grew up in a single parent household, so I think I just right, attribute okay. everything to women. Okay. I'm like, oh okay. yeah, mom does that. Mom does that. Of course, I'm I'm just kidding though. Don't no one get upset. <laughs> um, I think. Um, I mean, you have to be infected with an organism. You can't. Um, exactly. Right. You know, just just develop a cold from from being exposed to cold temperatures you have to be infected by the organism mm-hmm. um so i can't remember what your original question was but i, think I don't know either you if you if you go outside and uh you've not got warm clothing on um you probably got a greater chance of becoming hypothermic <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah and, yeah and uh, i don't know what impact that has on your susceptibility to infection but um it's not a good idea to go yeah. outside. There's this, uh, there's this, like, I love those Survivor shows. Not not the show Survivor, but, like, those people who go, like, Bear Grylls, right? You go out mm-hmm. in the wild and you, like, try to survive on the land. And there's one guy who does it who doesn't wear shoes, just barefoot, and he wears shorts everywhere. And he likes to be primal. And uh, that's bad move. Bad move. I'm, tell- <laughs> I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not an immuno- um, immunologist. That's a tough word. Um, yeah. But but don't do that. So now the the common cold. You are on the front lines of this thing. I'm out here. I'm fighting it too. But we're we're in different regimes, right? You're in the sure. lab, and you're trying to fundamentally understand how we can d- 
defeat the the rhinovirus. So yeah. now let's get into the technical side. What is it that you study, and sure. how do you intend to to sort of defeat this thing? I intend to sure. do it through brute force. I'm gonna wear a mask. I'm gonna like wear gloves where there's germex like stuffed inside of the gloves, so it's like okay. a waterbed over my fingers. Um, th- that's my method. I'm gonna wear a bee suit because I can't deal with this anymore. I'm over it. <laughs> but you, you're you're out there in the lab and and you have different ideas. Yeah. So I mean, we work on a a range of different viruses. The the rhinovirus just being one of them. Um, we study how. Uh, viruses interact with the immune system so we we're trying to develop a better understanding of how uh, certain molecules in your body interact with the viruses themselves um, so we work with a a family of molecules called host defense peptides and these are tiny molecules that are you know essentially very small proteins and what we found is that um these molecules are, are produced as part of your normal immune response. You know, your body produces them all the time. And we found that these molecules are incredibly effective at, at killing viruses. So while I was at CDC, um, we found that these molecules could kill um, flu virus. Um, and then latterly, when I moved to uh, Edinburgh Napier University, we found that they could um, that they could kill rhinovirus. So we synthesized these molecules in the lab um, and we found that they were very effective at, at killing the virus that causes a common cold. So what we're hoping to do now is to think about, well, if we have a, a naturally occurring molecule in your immune system that kills the virus, could that be developed into a treatment for the virus, for the people that really need it? So can you modify those molecules and make them better and more stable and um, more effective at killing the virus can you can you change their sequence essentially so they're incredibly appealing because you know one of the biggest challenges facing the human race over the next few years is going to be antibiotic resistance mm-hmm. now antibiotics aren't for treating viruses but these molecules that we work with and a lot of people work with them they can kill bacteria and viruses and they're incredibly attractive potential therapeutics for developing new treatments that can kill bacteria and viruses and we just need to understand how they work first of all Mm -hmm. and then understand what happens if we modify them in certain ways can we make them better at killing viruses and bacteria? And can you actually, you know, eventually the goal would be to turn them into a drug. Now, um, one of the questions I have in regards to these, um, these what, host defense peptides, right? Yes. Okay. One of the questions I have about these is what time scale do they work over? Because, you know, if you think about the body sort of producing them itself, Mm-hmm. then I would expect them to work on the order of, of days because that is, after all, how long it takes your body to sort of defeat the virus. Um, and if they do work over timescales of days, uh, what is the difference between, between you know, sort of vaccinating for the common cold and and just letting your body deal with it? Is there a way we could speed them up, say, you, you know, in sure. a day or something? Sure. So the... 
if you're vaccinating someone, you're you're trying to protect them. You know, you're trying to give them specific protection against that virus. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you're vaccinating against the common cold, you need a vaccine that's going to cover as many different strains of the cold virus as you possibly can. And that's why we don't ha- currently have a vaccine for the common cold because there's 160 different types of virus. So mm-hmm. um, you'd have to drink a gallon of vaccine in order to, um, to, to get it. it. You'd have to. Um, it would be difficult for you to mount an immune response against 160 pathogens right. simultaneously, and constructing the vaccine in that way would be would be quite challenging. But there are people that are trying to do it with, you know, smaller numbers, like 60 strains of rhinovirus, mm-hmm. and they're doing some fantastic work. With the the peptides, um, they can act in a matter of hours. So in the lab, if we mix uh, the virus and the peptide together. Within just a few hours, we see the virus dying. So they act very, very quickly. The problem is they're also in the body broken down quite quickly. Mm. You know, they don't last for days. Once you produce them, they don't last for days. They're, they only last for, for hours. So you have to keep producing them. Mm-hmm. That's why you have... Um, an inflammatory response and you know an, an innate immune response because you have to keep producing these peptides until your adaptive immune system takes over you know when you can start to produce antibodies against the virus so it's they're they're the frontline defense against the virus the problem with the cold is if you're a healthy person by the time you're symptomatic you're already well on the way to mounting an effective immune response against the virus. Right. If you're a person that has a a lung disease, then if you can envision a very rapid drug that you could Mm -hmm. give someone that could treat the virus very, very quickly, or even, you know, reduce the time it takes that person to recover, and you combine that with a very quick test to show that someone has rhinovirus mm-hmm. and that they could pre- be prescribed this specific drug, that would be a fantastic way to help those people that have asthma and cystic fibrosis. And this is, you know, this is years in the future. Right. This is, it will take a long time to understand what these peptides do to the level that we can then move to, you know, developing a drug. Mm-hmm. I but had, that's the ideal scenario. Right. I had a uh, Dr. Sam Sternberg on the podcast before. And he wrote the the was it cracking the code with Jennifer Doudna in regards to the the Cas9 uh, okay. protein CRISPR. CRISPR. And I was interested in the uh in the history of of CRISPR. And I talked to him a lot about that. What is the history of these host defense peptides? When did we start to realize the potential that these things have to cure not just the common cold, but what from what sounds like a range of of issues across the board? Yeah, I mean we've we've they've been around for millions of years, and well, much yes, every of course, mammalian organism has them. But um, I think the real interest in them uh, started only a decade ago. Um, I think they were discovered about um, 20 years ago, and, and since then, they were initially characterized as, you know, 
antimicrobial peptides or you know peptides that could kill bacteria and viruses but mm-hmm. since then all the work that's been done since then um by myself and, and people that are much more senior to me has un- begun to understand that they can also do a lot of other different things in your immune system so they can recruit cells to the site of infection they can change how a cell behaves they can change whether a cell lives or dies and that's why they're called host defense peptides because they have many more roles than just killing bacteria and viruses so that's why it's so important that we understand everything that they do and how they do it because if a drug is developed and we don't understand what other potential effects the peptides could have you know that that's not really a good idea you would you would want to have an understanding of how the peptides work right so how stable they are right so what's the 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 future look like for these host defense peptides right now from what it sounds like you you're you're merely putting strains of the rhinovirus you know in a i don't know i'm picturing you know like a little uh, what what is a petri dish is that what it's called um, <laughs> you're putting them in that uh, uh, yeah when how do you begin to sort of test these things out on on humans or or animals so where we're at now is um we know that um the pet you know the human peptide and peptides from other sources can kill rhinovirus so what we need to do now is we need to look at the structure of the peptide Uh and we need to play about with it we need to understand which parts of the peptide. So if you can imagine a peptide peptide that we work with is 37 amino acids long. Okay, so it's okay. got 37 amino acids in its sequence. Uh-huh. We're looking to see which part of the peptide actually does the job that it does. Which part of the peptide is responsible for killing the virus. It might not be the whole 37 amino acids. Uh-huh. It might just be 20. Right. This part of biology of, of, of medicine always boggles my mind because I can't, like, I don't, I can't fathom. It's funny because I'm, I'm a, I'm an astrophysicist and I study quantum mechanics at times. That's not what I do as a main focus of research, but I've, you know, I've, I've, if you're going to become a physicist, you have to learn quantum mechanics at some point. So I study the smallest of small, but for some reason, biology, Trying to manipulate these amino acids and figure out which ones do what, and somehow I assume you have to to break them down and 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 learn about the fundamental structure of each one and how it works in in connection with the others. That stuff always like how do you even? Because I, I picture little tweezers, you, you, like in there with little tweezers, and obviously it's not what's happening, right? We actually build them up, so we synthesize. Oh, um, that's actually we don't a good we don't move. actually break them down. That's we, a smart move. Up. Yeah. Um, but I rely on people that are much more intelligent and have a much greater understanding of peptide chemistry than I do. Mm-hmm. And I ride their coattails. And, That's fair. Um, they're the ones that are the, the real experts. You know what's interesting? I think every scientist across the board would say that exact same thing. Like, how do you do your research, Dr. Brown? And Dr. Brown would say, I rely on people much smarter than me. Where are the people that are much smarter than me? Because I say that too, like, oh, I rely on people much smarter than me. And then if I ask them who they rely on, they rely on people much smarter than them. It's just an endless chain of, of smart people. And then we're downhill, down here trying to communicate it. Um, 
which is good. So we, we have to test these, these things. And then, um, eventually we'll get to the point where you're like in infecting a rat with the rhinovirus and seeing if you can, can use these host defense peptides to, to cure him or her. Um, we're not at that point yet. And I think, um, if you use, um, good principles of drug design, Uh then, um, you know, maybe you don't have to do, um, that sort of, you know, that animal testing step because there's, there's no good, well, there isn't very good model, mouse models, for example, of rhinovirus. The ideal thing is to test it, you know, in humans. That's the uh-huh. population that you're, that you're aiming to test. So we do as much work in the lab as we possibly can to understand how they work and to characterize them so that, you know, we can get to the human point a lot quicker. Yeah. So what do you, I read a, um, an article that you wrote and you said, I believe you said that we could begin to see these being used in, in human subjects in a decade. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Your article pointed out something fantastic, something that hurts me to my core. And that thing is that these host defense peptides and the eventual solution to the common cold, if there is one, isn't going to be given out to people like me who have to shove tissues in my nose to sit and so I'm not miserable, right? It's going to be given out to people that need it in order to survive or in order to improve their quality of life. And there's a very important reason for that. And I'll let you explain it, but but it's it's in regards to the way that we overprescribe antibiotics, right? Sure. So this is this is just a prediction. Um, I'm, I'm, it's not my role to determine who uh, gets or doesn't get um, a medicine. But if you look at antibiotic resistance, we are now in a situation because we have not only um, used antibiotics um, in a way that has allowed bacteria to generate resistance. So, for example, if you add antibiotics to animal feed or you prescribe them needlessly, uh-huh. then you are giving bacteria a good opportunity to develop resistance against them. And that, that's a problem because it means that you then need to develop new antibiotics right? because those bacteria are resistant. Viruses do the same thing. So viruses like flu, for example, can develop resistance against the drugs that treat flu. Uh-huh. So the best way to protect people is by vaccinating them because there's no resistance element. Right. If you vaccinate people, yes. you're not you're not devi- you're not inducing drug resistance. So the phrase the cure for the common cold is thrown around a lot. And when you're talking about a cure, you're talking about a treatment. You're not talking about the prevention for the common cold, you're talking about the treatment for the common cold. Now, if healthy people shrug off a common cold within three or four days. Yes, there's an economic impact. Mm-hmm. But if you make an antibiotic or a drug freely available to the whole world, you're also running a very high risk that the virus will develop resistance to that drug eventually. And then you'll be in the situation where you don't have a treatment. Right. Yeah, I, I know people that uh, take antibiotics like aspirin. They like have a bottle sitting in their medicine cabinet and they start to feel a little sniffly, probably just a cold, and they pop an antibiotic. Yeah, I, I see that. 
And I'm like, oh my god. And and I know that this angers you, but this happens a lot. Like this is actually a big thing. Two pieces of advice there, and bear in mind I'm not a clinician. One, finish a course of antibiotics that you're prescribed. Yes. And two, return any unused medicines to your doctor. Do not take a single antibiotic pill when you feel like you've got an infection coming on. Oh, man, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I just grew up in the wrong area in central Pennsylvania, but I see it. I know a lot of people that do that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And, it, and it's probably not just a Pennsylvania thing. It, it probably is a systemic thing across, across. I can the, imagine because that's sort of how we've been trained to take medicines, like ordinary medicines. We we look at antibiotics as 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 a, a a solution to a problem, just the same way we look at aspirin as a solution to the headache or solution sure. to the back pain or whatever. Yeah, it's a it's an issue, and uh, you know, I I. I have to pay conscious attention to not do it. Although I don't think I've taken antibiotics in years because I just don't go to the doctor for the, the illness anymore. Um, okay. But I do take probiotics every day. Is okay. there any, is there any link between, between things like fish oil, probiotics, um, vitamin supplementation? Is there any links between that and, and, and preventing some of these diseases or so that's illnesses? A, that's a really good question. And you just, you mentioned two things there. The first one being, um, Fish oil uh, contains high levels of vitamin D, mm-hmm. um, I think, and um, vitamin D is one of the substances that can boost your immune system through um, stimulating your immune system pr- to produce these peptides naturally. So a lot of um, populations in the Northern Hemisphere are deficient in vitamin D, and yeah. um, it's a good idea to mm-hmm. ensure that you have as much vitamin D intake is, is as recommended. And that's because we have to sit inside for six months out of the year because it's so damn cold out. You yes. don't want to go outside. You don't want to get that sunshine. But sorry, continue. Um, the, the second thing I was going to say was um, there's, a, there's a lot of research going on now to look at the link between your gut bacteria and you know your overall health. And um, I think that's going to be a huge area in the coming years that you know, having a better understanding of how your gut resident bacteria um, actually contributes to your susceptibility to disease is a really exciting area of research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am a big fan of sports. I love sports. I love American football. I love mixed martial arts. I love boxing, basketball, whatever it is. I love it. But my two big ones are, or my big one is, is mixed martial arts. I'm a, a huge fan since I was a kid. And one thing that's interesting that I notice in the world of MMA is that people tend to get staph infections. They get infections um, from the mats, from rolling around with other sweaty people, and they have to take antibiotics. Now, you can yeah. see, visually see, the way that antibiotics affects athletic performance in some of these athletes when they're trying to, to, to take them. And the link, as I understand it, is that you're not only killing the bad bacteria in your body, you're destroying your gut biome when you take some antibiotics. Is, is there is there truth to, to that? Um, I, I, I don't know if I'd say that you're destroying your gut biome. I no, destroying is a bit. Yeah, I, of course. That's yeah, anti- antibiotics, you know, they're, they're targeting different populations of bacteria. So when you take, you know, an antibiotic pill, then it may have an effect Mm-hmm. on some of the bacteria, the resident bacteria in your gut. Um, 
which is why it's it's so important that we understand you know how the gut microbiome contributes to health um because you know as we as we have a better understanding of that then you can maybe you know mitigate that risk you can maybe get a better understanding of that mm-hmm. yeah something else that that i saw recently that interested me man flu <laughs> i saw an article about sure. man flu and now as i understand it this is the the belief commonly held belief and maybe there's some uh you know published evidence to, to back it up i don't know but that men get worse cold symptoms than women and anecdotally i could say my wife definitely hand i'll say handles it better than me i don't know if she feels better than me but she definitely doesn't act like i act which is i get so miserable she just deals with it she's like oh yeah my nose is running no big deal and you know goes to work and and does whatever she does no i'm down i'm out um and and i don't know is there any truth to this idea that man flu exists um (laughs) so the the article that you you read might have been a wee bit tongue-in-cheek um Uh there's uh, from you know, I look at it from a scientific perspective, and I'd be interested to see um, whether there's you know sex-specific differences in in the immune systems of men and women. Yeah. Um, and I don't know whether that's you know been fully established. It might it might have been. I don't I, I don't know. Um, there is no easy answer to that. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. Um, I also think that you know it kind of depends on what you've been infected with. That's um, true. Different yeah. different bacteria and viruses have different um, different effects on your body and can make you feel worse or not so bad. So I think there's, <laughs> there's too many factors um, <laughs> that kind of come into play there. Yeah, um, it it is a it, it was a little bit tongue in cheek that the article, but yeah, absolutely, but it is a it is something that I've heard before. This is not the first time I've heard it. Um, I've sure. heard you know people say that and. And I can think of, you know, several sort of anecdotal cases, and I know anecdotal evidence doesn't mean much um, in the world of, of, you know, publishing science, at least not in the world of astrophysics. You know, you, you can't uh, come up with some anecdotal story about how you saw a really interesting object streak across the sky sure, um, and, and publish that in an astrophysical journal or something. Um, that doesn't work. But, but you know, I, I do tend to see men not handling it at least the men in my life not handling it as well as the women the counterpart women because i'm trying to you know compartmentalize married couples because i would think that if one half of the married couple got the illness the other half of the married couple would probably get infected with the same strain if they got sick at about the same time now that might not Mm -hmm. be true there might be some you know um nuance there but but that's sort of how i look at and that's how i compare me and my wife and she's you know she's a trooper and i'm crying so I, th- I think it would be a really good scientific study to do is you know infecting two people or yeah. infecting multiple groups of, of yeah. people with and, uh, yeah from your perspective it'd be interesting to see how the the sexes men versus women how their immune system produces these host defense peptides if yeah, one absolutely. if one produces it better than another you know yeah you know, what's even more interesting i think is how different people produce them Right? Is, is there people out there who have these super immune systems? 
you know, who just, their body just does a damn good job. And is there anything we can learn about those people and say, man, your immune system is a, is a real champion. And, and this is why it produces these peptides in this particular fashion and it reacts very quickly because some people don't get very sick very often. Mm-hmm. And some people get sick quite often. And it could, of course, you know, there's nuance there. It could be that mm-hmm. the person who gets sick often works around tons of people, works at a university, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's an interesting field of study, I think. It is. I mean, and, and I don't think we've ever done the experiment where we've looked to see, um, you know, whether different people have different um, concentrations of, of, of these peptides and, you know, how susceptible they are. We're doing a piece of work at the moment where, we're looking at um, patients that have suffered from dengue virus. Um, so really serious virus that's um, endemic in a number of countries and is, is responsible for, you know, a number of deaths. Yeah, I think I've heard of dengue fever, right? Is that's that, that's the, the same yeah, okay. that's the virus that causes dengue yeah. fever. And um, so we're looking to see whether there's, you know, any any pattern there, any correlation between, you know, the severity of disease that these people suffer mm-hmm. and their host defense peptide concentrations. So um, hopefully we'll have a, some information on that in a, a couple of years time once that piece of work's been done. But yeah, I mean, it's a fan, you've, you've raised a fantastic question. Do, do some people have better immune systems than others? And um, again, that's a question where there's going to be so many different factors coming into play that, um, it will require quite a substantial study to assess that. Yeah. Now, in regards, you're, you're mentioning the fact that you'd need a big study. You'd need a substantial study, which means you'd probably also need substantial funding. I'm huh. curious, does the stigma that you can just deal with the common cold, that you can just get over the common cold, uh, let it pass, does that stigma prevent you from getting significant funding? Do funders tend to not worry about the common cold as much as they would say worry about cancer or worry about diabetes or something else um i don't think so because the the virus that causes the common cold can be so severe in, in patients with yes. asthma and copd and actually and it's in, important in, to communicate that with the, the yeah providers. yeah um and you know in infants there's a relationship between um you know viral infection and the development of wheezing and asthma in later mm-hmm. life so um I, I certainly don't think that that funders look at it like that. What I think they see a you know here is a a problem for human health. Here is a problem that affects people. So what can we do to fix that problem? Um, and certainly we've received um, support from uh, medical charities um, from the Scottish government. They funded us for a, a very significant study um, looking at rhinovirus. So um, there's a you know. I think there is an appetite for ensuring that we've got an effective treatment for a virus that can affect a number of people. Yeah, one day when I'm a billionaire, I'll be throwing money your way because I need it. That'd be very you know, generous of you. I need that vaccine. I know you don't want to give it to me. I won't give it to my friends. I just need it for myself. <laughs> yeah. So you also work oh, – What you were going to say something? I was just going to say, uh, we have about five minutes left, so I was wondering if you had any um, burning questions. Um, I have a, a student that I have to go and meet. It, uh, oh, yeah, no, just no five problem. Minutes, I, so. I wanted to talk, I wanted to mention one more thing. Um, sure. You also work on something else in regards to human health. You work on, on pollution, on yeah. particle pollution. Yeah. You know, how does that 
you know, this is some preliminary results, I think, on your end, but very quickly, how does living in an environment like this, where where there's so much pollution in the air, like I'm living in, and I presume you're living in, how does that affect human health? So we, I mean, it's, again, air pollution is a massive challenge for the human race. Um, There's now a wealth of studies showing that exposure uh, acute and chronic exposure to air pollution can have so many detrimental effects on um, people at all stages in life, you know, from respiratory effects, heart disease, cardiovascular disease. Um, so we, we, you know, we did a study where we were looking at, um, and this was in the laboratory, we looked at how air pollution particles could affect host defense peptide function. So we looked in the lab to see whether after exposure to air pollution particles, could the host defense peptides still kill viruses? Could they still kill bacteria? And we found that they couldn't, you know, the the air pollution particles, the Mm -hmm. the tiny nanoparticles, the nano-sized particles in air pollution could actually inhibit the function of your host defense peptides. So now um, we're hoping to take that study further and ask the question at a population level, you know, if we look at a population of people that are that live in high air pollution areas versus low air pollution areas, uh-huh. is, there, is there any impact on their susceptibility to infection? Do we see more people being infected with viruses and bacteria in areas where there's high air pollution? So I, I think there's huge scope for, for more research and understanding how air pollution can affect people. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this. I have a vested interest in in the things that hopefully you and and the people close to you will be producing sure. in the next decade. Uh, it's incredibly interesting. It's a, a, an incredibly good perspective on on the the cold, on the flu, on everything. Um, is there anything that that you want to plug? Where can people find you? <laughs> um, it was a well. I'll, I'll say it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, if anybody wants to find out more information about uh, my work um, and the work of my group, then please follow me on Twitter um, or just Google me. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, in a few years' time, um, we'll have something exciting to talk about in terms of a treatment for the common cold. All right. Thanks for being here. And uh, if you search Peter Barlow on Google, he is not the soccer player. So That's don't, true. Don't get that mistaken. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. We're out.